We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Reading from John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your word, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning all that you have for us in this text. Uh, You know that all of us in this room, we come from so many different places and so many And those stories are very complex. And the truth is that you alone have the wisdom to speak into our lives, that you you know all of our stories. You know it better than we know them ourselves. And you have the power to change and transform us. And so we, we don't just need human words this morning. We do not just need some words of inspiration, but we need words from heaven 
And so we pray that you would come and you would speak to us through your word and through your spirit. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. You can take your seats. Uh, Last week, we started a vision series. And what we're going to be doing over the next, uh, actually this week and then next Sunday, is we're taking three weeks to look at what is our vision as a church. Now, why are we doing this? Well, it's, it's important that we do this honestly, every year, uh, to remind ourselves of why we exist as a church so we don't forget. But I think there's an added importance to doing it right now, and, and here it is, is so many of you are new to this church. Some of you, you, you found us online during COVID. Uh, some of you are just kind of in this season of spiritual awakening. You Googled churches near me and up popped Resurrection Oakland, and here you are. Some of you are new to the area. You've just moved here. And the question that, that so many of you are asking is, what is this church about? And is this a church for me? And is this a church that I want to belong to? So we need to talk about our vision. And, and here it is. We like to say at Resurrection Oakland that we want to be a church not just for ourselves, but for the unconvinced and for Oakland. And so last week we looked at the church part. What does it mean to be a church? And we we said that a church is a community of broken, messy people that none of us has it all together, including the pastors. And that it's also, it's a a community of, of broken, messy people who are brought together into a single family, a new family. You know, that is actually the primary way that the New Testament talks about the church is that it's a family. It's a group of people who love and care for one another and who are involved in one another's lives. And it's a diverse family. It's a multi-ethnic family because we are not bound by, by color or class or socioeconomic status, but we are bound together by our shared need for God's grace and our shared experience of his love and his mercy. We're a church. And today we're getting to the not just for ourselves, but for the unconvinced part. One theologian has said this. He said the church is the only society that exists primarily for the sake of its non-members. If you are here today and you were just exploring Christianity. Maybe you were in a church for the very first time in your life. We are so glad that you are here. We are seeking to be a church for people who do not yet believe, who are not yet convinced. And if you're a Christian here today, let me just say this to you. If you're a Christian, you consider yourself a part of this church. We want every Sunday to be a good Sunday to invite a skeptical friend. Let me say that again. Every Sunday should be a good Sunday to invite a skeptical friend. Do you notice that everybody in this passage that we just read is inviting their friends? You know, Andrew invites Simon. Philip invites Nathaniel. See, if you are a Christian, are you doing that? Are you inviting people? Do you remember the movie Avatar? came out in like 2009, all those weird blue creatures that were like half naked. Remember that? Remember that? 
kind of strange. Do you know that that is the top grossing movie of all time? You know, in 2009, James Cameron, who was the director of that movie, he was asked, what, why are so many people coming to see this movie? And this is what he said. He said, when people have an experience in the movie theater that's very powerful, the first thing they want to do is go share it. They want to go grab their friend and bring them so that they can enjoy it. They want to be the person that can bring them the news that this is something worth having in their life. When you experience the wonder of God's love for you in Christ, you become that kind of person, and we become that kind of church. You know, there's a phrase in the passage that we're looking at today that really jumped out at me this week. It's the phrase, come and see. And it shows up twice, actually. There's two stories, and it shows up in each of the stories, verse 39 and verse 46. And that phrase is actually what links these two stories together. Because in these two stories, what you have are two skeptics who are encountering Jesus, and they are trying to figure out who he is, and what are they told? Come and see come and see. We want to be a church where people can come and see. That's what it looks like to be a church for the unconvinced, a church where, where they can come and see. And if you're not a Christian, you might say, what does that even mean? And that, that's what I actually want to talk about this morning, is what does it mean to be a church where people can come and see? And I want to talk about three things this morning from this passage. It means to be a place where people can come and process number one. Number two, a place where they can come and change, number two. And number three, a place where they can come and worship, all right? Come and, come and, uh, come and process, come and change, come and worship. So first, come and process. All right, in both of these stories, Jesus is met with questions and with doubts. So in the first story, you've got two followers of John the Baptist, and they've heard this radical claim that Jesus is the Lamb of God. That's a claim to deity. But they're not convinced. And so they go to meet him. They go to find him. And in the second story, you find this skeptic named Nathaniel who hears that Jesus is the Messiah and he's from Nazareth. And he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? He's, he is totally skeptical. Both of these stories, two skeptics, both of them have questions both of them have doubts. Both of them are not convinced. And how does Jesus respond to both of them? I want you to notice that he does not demand immediate belief. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't say, stop asking your questions. Stop doubting. He's not dismissive of those things. And some of us in this room have come from church backgrounds where our questions were dismissed and our doubts weren't really responded to. You couldn't doubt. And what I want you to see this morning is that Jesus doesn't do this. Instead, what does he do? He invites both of these people into a process of being around him, of getting to know him, of being with him of exploring his claims and of asking their questions and of dealing with their doubts so that they might come to faith in him, not, not instantaneously, but actually gradually 
and over time. One of the biggest misunderstandings that people have about faith in general and faith in Jesus in particular is that it requires you to stop thinking. That church is kind of this place where you have to check your brain at the door. People think that faith and reason are mutually exclusive. And so in order to have faith, you have to set aside whatever, whatever questions or doubts that you might have. And Christianity says, no. That is not how faith works. In fact, Christianity says it's the exact opposite. In John chapter 20, after the resurrection, Jesus' Jesus's disciple Thomas says to the other disciples, I will not believe that he has risen from the dead unless, unless I see his scars, unless I touch his wounds. And when Jesus shows up, you know what he says to Thomas? He does not say, how dare you question me? Stop doubting. No, he says, here are my scars. Touch my wounds and now believe. In other words, you're looking for evidence? Here it is. See, Jesus is not against people thinking. If anything, he's against people not thinking hard enough. Look at what he says at the very end to Nathanael in verse 50. He says, do you believe just because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? That's, that's a mild rebuke from Jesus. Jesus is saying, hey, all right, just a minute ago, you were so skeptical about me, but now you've, you've had this emotional experience and, and, and you're ready to believe. Now, have you really taken time to think this out? See, come and see means to come and think, to come and consider the claims of Jesus, to come and examine the evidence, to come and bring your questions and to come and bring your doubts, and not just to bring your doubts, but let me say this, to come and doubt your doubts. You know, doubt is so cool. Like, it is way in. It is very cool to doubt. People doubt everything. The only thing we don't doubt is our doubts. We, we think that our doubts are so objective, but the reality is that our doubts, they are never as objective as we think. And we actually see this in Nathaniel. Because underneath Nathaniel's doubt is a sneer. You hear it? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Anything? You're telling me that this guy has all the answers to life's biggest question? You're, t you're telling me that this is the savior of the world. And see, many people today view Christianity like Nathaniel viewed Nazareth. They sneer at its claims about who Jesus is and what he's done and what he can do for your life. They see Christianity as backwoods, as regressive, as outdated, as a religion that is out of step with today's culture and today's values. And I want to, if that's where you are this morning, I just want to say this, before you dismiss Christianity, would you consider this, that maybe your doubts are not as objective as you think? Uh, Ann Wilson, who's, a, who's kind of a famous 
British intellectual. Um, he, uh, he's been an outspoken atheist for many, many years. But somewhere in kind of the mid-2000s, he became a Christian. Leading up to that, he'd written all sorts of books against Christianity. He wrote a book called Against Religion. He kept talking about how Jesus is just another failed kind of revolutionary leader in, in kind of the long list of religious leaders throughout history. But he became a Christian. And in 2009, he started reflecting on it publicly, writing a bunch of articles about his conversion. And one of them was, it was titled this, Religion of Hatred, Why We Should No Longer Be Cowed by the Chattering Classes Ruling Britain Who Sneer at Christianity. And he, and he said this, he said, For much of my life, I too have been one of those who did not believe. It was in my young manhood that I began to wonder how much of the Easter story I actually accepted, and in my 30s that I lost any religious belief whatsoever. Like many people who lost faith, I felt anger with myself for having been conned by such a story. He said, why did I, along with so many others, become so dismissive of Christianity? Like most educated people in Britain and Northern Europe, I have grown up in a culture that is overwhelmingly secular and anti-religious. Does that sound familiar? The universities, broadcasters, and media generally are not merely non-religious, but they are positively anti. And to my shame, I believe it was this that made me lose faith and heart in my youth. He, he says this, he says, it felt so uncool to be religious. With the mentality of a child in the playground, I felt at some visceral level that being religious was unsexy, like having spots or wearing large, ugly glasses. It felt so uncool. I mean, would you be willing to consider that the reason you have been so, if this is you this morning, the reason you've been so dismissive of Christianity is not because of some great intellectual arguments, but it's because we are swimming in a culture that sneers at this stuff. And it's actually what has kept you from taking a, a real objective look at your doubts. See, come and doubt your doubts. Come and process. Let me, let me say one other thing about this idea of come and process. You cannot do this alone. You cannot do this alone. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're saying, I, I, I'm trying to figure this stuff out, you cannot do it on your own. Do you know that no one is alone in this passage? Andrew had just been with John the Baptist. Simon had been with Andrew. Nathaniel was with Philip. If you're trying to figure out if you can believe this stuff, you need a community. You need other people. You need a church, actually, where you can come and explore, where you can come and process. Come and process. All right, number two, come and change. You know, Christianity, this has been a little academic in point one, but Christianity is way more than just kind of a truth for your head. Christianity is a power that can change your entire life. And isn't that what we all want? We want to be different. You know, if we are honest with ourselves, we have this nagging sense that we're not the person we want to be. We're not the friend we want to be. We're not the neighbor we want to be. We're not the spouse we want to be. 
We're not the parent we want to be. And this is why we spend so much money on therapy. Because we want people to help us change. We want to be different. We long to be different. But some of us have actually given up hope that that is possible. This passage says that when you become a Christian, change is not just a possibility. It's not just a possibility, but it is a promise. When God sets his affections on you, he unleashes his power into your life to change you and to transform you. I mean, look at this first story, this strange interaction in verse 42, where Andrew invites his brother Simon to come and see Jesus. And when he meets Jesus, what does Jesus do? He looks at him and he says, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Can you imagine if one of you came up to me after the service and said, nice to meet you, pastor. My name's Jane. And I said, nice to meet you, Jane. I shall call you Sarah. What in the world is Jesus doing? I mean, how do you just give someone a new name? Jesus is not just giving Simon a new name. He is giving him a new trajectory. The, the word Peter, which is the new name that Jesus gives to him, in the Greek, you know what it means? It means rock. What Jesus is saying is, Simon, now that you've met me, your life is never going to look the same. I'm going to make you into a whole new person. Not just a nice person. That's what a lot of people think Christianity is. You just get a little nicer. You just get a little bit of morality into your life, a little bit of religion into your life. You can become a nice person. Jesus is saying, no, I've come to make you a new person, a new creation. And that is exactly what happens in Peter's life as we watch it unfold in the rest of the New Testament. He goes from someone who is incredibly self-serving to someone who is incredibly self-sacrificial. He goes from a self-righteous jerk to someone who is incredibly humble. He goes from a seeker of power to someone who becomes an advocate for the poor. He goes from a coward to a person of courage and integrity. His life his life is totally transformed. And if you know Jesus, yours can and will be too. You are a new creation. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes in to rebuild the house. At first, you usually understand what he is doing. He gets the drains right and stops the leak in the roof and so on. You know that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in ways that hurt abominably and that do not make much sense. What on earth is he up to? And then the explanation. He is building a very different house than the one you thought of. 
Here, he's throwing off a new wing. There, he's putting up towers. Now, he's making a courtyard. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but God is building a palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. Friends, do you have God's vision for your life? You know, there's no one who has a vision for your life like this God. Who says, I've actually come to change you. Give up your small ambitions. This is not just about getting a little bit of religion or morality or becoming a little bit nicer. This is about God utterly transforming you beyond your wildest dreams. And this is one of our hopes as a church. It is to see people's lives transformed by the gospel. To see addictions overcome. To see marriages restored. To see greedy people become generous people. To see proud people become humble people. To see bitter people become forgiving people, to see people who feel like they have no meaning in this world come to the realization that they have ultimate meaning. To see people go from just caring about their career and comfort to having their life caught up in the kingdom of God and the renewal of all things. This is what we want to see. You know, our, this room is pretty full this morning which is awesome because I preached in it for about 15 months by myself, which was not awesome. Pretty lame, actually. I was, I was tired of going to that church. Um, this room is pretty full. We are a three-year-old church. God has given us this incredible building in the heart of the city. And it is so easy to think that we have made it, that we have arrived you know, our greatest measure of success is not how many people in this room. It is the extent to which people in this room, their lives are being changed and transformed and becoming more and more like Jesus. Come and change. Which raises the question, how does change like that happen? How do we become those kinds of people? How do we become this kind of church? That brings us to the last point. Come and worship. And in worship, it is the engine of change. It's the way you change. You become like whatever you worship. If you worship money, you become greedy. If, if you worship power, you become oppressive. If you worship beauty. You become vain. But you know what? If you worship Jesus, you become like him. Worship really is our ultimate goal as a church. That's why we exist, ultimately. It is to see people who come to know and love and worship King Jesus. Worship is also the way that you know whether or not you've really come and seen It always, if you've really come and seen, it always ends in worship, just like it does for Nathaniel in this story. In verse 49, he says, you are the son of God. I mean, this is amazing. One minute he goes from a total skeptic 
And in the very next breath, he is a worshiper. He is saying, Jesus, I will do anything to follow you, to give my life to you, to be with you, to be near you, to get close to you. What could cause us to worship God like this? You know, when, when Jesus invites us to come and see, what he's really inviting us to come and see is his love. That's the invitation this morning. And, and for, for Nathaniel, he saw two realities about Jesus' love, and we need to see them too. That, that it's a knowing love and it's a pursuing love. We're going to end here this morning. Jesus' love is a knowing love and it's a pursuing love. It's only as you see that that you come to worship. So it's a knowing love. The first thing that Jesus says to Nathanael in verse 47 is, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, that is quite a compliment. It's quite a praise. It's quite an affirmation. And Nathanael responds, what does he say? He says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, it is that statement in combination with the praise, the affirmation, that actually prompts Nathanael to worship. He says, you are the Son of God. And so the question is, what did Jesus see? I mean, what was going on under this fig tree? Don't you want to know? Aren't you curious? What could Jesus have known or seen about Nathanael that would have made him say this? Here's the answer. We have no clue. You know, not even John the writer knows. But here is what we do know. We know that it was so intimate. It was so personal. We know that Nathaniel felt like he was being known to a degree that he had never experienced before. That Jesus' knowing of him and his praise of him elicited this incredible response of worship. Now, why would it do that? If you've been around our church for a little while, you've probably heard me tell this story, but several months, probably about six months into our marriage, my wife looked at me one night and she said, you are my most favorite person in the world. And I'm going to tell you, those are some of the most powerful words of praise and affirmation that I've ever received. I mean, I was... I was undone in that moment. Like, I'm talking grown man, ugly crying, all right? <laughs> totally undone. Now, if one of you came up to me after the service and said, you are my most favorite person in the world, that happens like every other week, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> if one of you came up to me and said that, I'd be flattered, but it would not have the same effect on me. You know why? Because you don't know the worst parts about me. There's only certain parts of me that you get to see. But she sees, she sees the worst parts. She sees the selfishness. She sees the bitterness. She sees how I can hold grudges. She sees how 
I can actually find my identity in what God is doing in this church. She sees how I can really turn on people if they hurt me. She sees all of me. And she loves me. And see, there is, there is such incredible power in being known and loved. But friends, here is the honest truth. The honest truth is that no matter how good of a marriage you might be in or how good of a marriage you wish you could have, you will always find that there is a limit to how much another person can know you and love you. There's always a limit until you meet Jesus. And then what you find is that there is no one who knows you and loves you like him. That like Nathaniel, he knows the worst about you. He sees the whole picture. He sees you to the bottom. And yet like Nathaniel, he praises you to the skies. There, is not, there has never been a person, a human person, who has or whoever can know you and love you like him. And to the degree that you experience this knowing love, you begin to worship him. It is a knowing love, but then it's a pursuing love. Because look at this, Jesus ends in verse 51 by saying to Nathanael, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And you say, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Nathanael knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob has a dream. And in this dream, there's this ladder. And angels are ascending and descending into God's presence. See, how do you get into God's presence? How do you have a relationship with God? You know, every other religion says, here's how. You climb the ladder. You ascend through a moral life. You go up. You search for God. You know what the Christian gospel says? God came down. It is the only story in the world that says God came down, that God came down in a person. And he came down to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, that we do not ascend to get him, but he actually descended to get us. Despite the fact that he sees the whole picture, that he know, knew everything about us, all of our failures and all of our faults and all of our guilt and all of our shame and all of our secrets. He pursued us, not just by climbing a ladder, but by climbing a cross. Friends, the God who invites you to come and seek him, he came to seek you. And if you're here this morning and you were looking for God, it's because God is looking for you. If you're searching for God, it's because God is already searching for you. Do you know his love for you? Have, have you seen the depths to which he has gone to pursue you? Come and see. That's actually the invitation of this table. This table is God's weekly invitation 
to come and see his love and not just to see it, but to taste it, to eat it, to drink it. There is no love like the love that you will find at this table. And if you have never known it, you can know it today. If you've never received it, you can receive it today. It is offered freely to you in Jesus Christ. Come and see. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this table and for this good news of a God who has run after people like us, people who are prone to wonder. God, would you give us grace and faith to believe this morning, to come and see, to come and taste, to come and know your love, whether it is for the first time or to know it afresh and anew for the hundredth time. We ask that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen.